as you listen to the praise team sing that last song. The history of that song, I think, is pretty interesting because the man who wrote it was a professional musician, a professional worship leader who had a situation much like I have this morning. He had vocal nodules and he was unable to sing. And so you hear that line, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come. Isn't that what worship is all about? So this week we asked some folks in this church, what does worship mean to you? And here are some of their responses. Take a look at this. Worship takes me out of myself. Makes me feel happy. Part of a community. Praise. Worship is our chance to acknowledge that God is God and that we are not. I mean, I think worship for me is just really simple. And what it's supposed to be, worship. What you just heard was members from this congregation answering one simple question. What is worship? And as we see, worship has a unique meaning to each and every one of us. As Chuck has told us, our mission as a church is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. And in the past, that hasn't always been us. Sometimes we've been an either-or church. God's church is an inclusive church, and that's why we need to strive to be a church that is both-and. A both-and church embraces its tradition through acapella music, and we will continue to do that very well. And in acapella singing, you can hear each other, and you uh, can lift your voice and praise in ways that... Uh, and get ground out. There's something simple and pure about just voices raised in song. It's amazing to be able to sing with people and to hear everyone else's voices also worshiping God. It's just so basic. There isn't anything um, to make you feel differently. It's just you and the Lord, and it's your words. It's about the words and about what you're saying. A time for myself to um, release emotions and feelings that come with the lyrics and the meanings out of those songs. And it means so much that our church now is joining together to sing these wonderful, meaningful, worshipful songs that have been sung through the ages. But a both and church also creates space for people to experience the freedom of Christ where they are. The Saturday night uh, worship time was a more intimate service. Night of worship is a great um, smaller atmosphere, but it feels very intimate and focused. There's nothing distracting us from worship. It's all about praising God. It's all about um, just getting together in order to worship, which is wonderful. It's a family. I feel like I can um, be less reserved and I can worship um, more freely. I've been worried that instrumental music um, might become more of a performance 
but it's not. God doesn't care what the uh, type of praise is as long as we praise Him. So it's not whether we, um, how we praise, but whether we praise. Coming on Saturday nights, it, it's way more laid back, and it is a very come-as-you-are kind of thing, and I feel like that's what Skillman has been for me since the beginning, meeting people here and just talking to everyone. People are broken in different places, and it's always been come-as-you-are, and Saturday night is just another opportunity to do that. The same with Wednesday night stuff. It's just another opportunity to be broken, but be broken together. I will tell you, I love this church. And I love this church because of the very diversity that you just saw. That it is not either or, but it is both and. And so this morning, I want to spend a little time talking about worship. We have been spending the last bit of seasons of time talking about our our values, which are listed on this board, as well as our mission and vision. How does all that tie in to this hour and the times that we come together to worship? I will say to all of us that anything that's alive, whether it is an organism or an organization, they go through changes. And I want you to understand that change is sometimes difficult and change is sometimes painful and change is always a bit uncomfortable. And yet it is something that we know has to happen. I think it's also true that God brings things back to life that were seemingly dead. I want to look at Ezekiel chapter 37. We'll start in verse 4. We'll have it on the screen for you as well. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. It's an interesting story. You have Ezekiel who is brought to this valley of dry, dead bones, and he's asked a question. Son of man, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel's response to that question in Ezekiel 37 is, Lord, only you know. And you begin to see As tendons and bones come together, as flesh covers those bones, they look real and they look alive. And yet you find out something interesting as you continue to read Ezekiel 37. They have no ruah, a Hebrew word for breath and spirit. Though they seemingly look like they should be able to live, there is no spirit there. I'm afraid that's where some churches are today. 
They look alive. They do things the church ought to do. But they are not living and breathing according to what God's Spirit has called them to go and do. And I think that's the thing that we've got to, we've got to get our minds, our hearts wrapped around. That the Spirit of God continues to bring renewal and breath into the church. It always has. It is a part of our heritage. It is a part of who we are. That God continues to do these new things among us on a regular basis. If you think I'm overstating my case, look at what's said in Revelation 3. To the church of Sardis, write, These are the ones of him who holds the seven stars of God and the seven spirits. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. I think that admonition for us to wake up and to once again to allow God's Spirit to lead us is an admonition we need to take seriously. It is who we as both individuals and the church needs to be. And so you see the end of the story in Ezekiel 37. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath entered them and they came to life and they stood up to their feet and they were a vast army. How many people believe that God is in the change business? Raise your hand. So do I. Resurrection is change. Salvation is change. Forgiveness is change. A new life in Christ is change. God calls us to live a different way than we have lived. The church is always going to go through changes. Back in the 1800s, somebody thought it was a good idea to have what they called Sunday school. They thought that was a terrible idea. And people railed against that moment. Now, here's what I also know. If I walked up this morning and said, you know what, we've just decided to do away with Sunday school. People would rail against that moment, right? Because it's become a part of who we are. Anytime we talk about worship and anytime you use the word change, here's what tends to happen. People tend to go to their corners. They've got their positions. They've got the things that they believe. They have all of those things that are there and they get ready to debate it. They get ready to kind of have this moment where we sit there and have these long, drawn-out conversations. And I want to say to you, change for change's sake is idiotic. It's a ridiculous thing to do. 
But I want to go back here. A mission to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. A vision that says we're going to do that as we love God, love each other, and love the world. Now, if that mission and vision is at the epicenter of the change that is occurring, and it's biblical, that's the thing that we need to look at. See, any time we talk about, and I will say to visitors among us this morning, there is some history that is incorporated into this lesson a bit. And so I will use terms like restoration movement and restoration heritage. For some of you, that may not mean anything. But for those of us who have grown up in this fellowship, we understand it. In fact, it means a great deal to all of us. And in our restoration movement roots, we had this idea that we could restore New Testament Christianity in the present age. Isn't that a good idea? It's a great idea. You saw it as you look in Acts chapter 2. We looked at it last week and looked at how powerful an idea that really is that when believers start to have all things in common, when they care enough about their fellow brother and sister in Christ, that there are no needs among them. Good things start to happen. God starts to move. The church starts to build in community. So that idea of becoming a New Testament church is exactly what we ought to be. Here's what I believe. I believe that we should be true to what a church of Christ was always intended to be. Unsectarian, unity-minded, Christ-centered, and faithful to our heritage both in Scripture and our restoration tradition. That is what restoration and reformation is all about. It is the willingness to embrace change from within. That if the church itself is a living organism, then there are some changes that will happen with that organism as time goes on. We have an opportunity for dry bones to be brought back to life. And I want to say, with that in mind, I want to talk about two things. Because we could look at worship in a lot of different ways, and we could talk about worship in many vast areas and aspects. But the two places where we tend to get stuck are in music and the use of women in worship assemblies. Those are the two places where we tend to have most of our disagreements and our difficulties. So I want to talk about our tradition in music First, you heard in the video, we have this long-standing history, tradition, an a cappella tradition that is rich and powerful. When visitors come walking in these doors, and when they listen to what happened this morning as the praise team led us in worship, you know what tends to be the response? 
that was amazing. That was wonderful. That was good. That actually mattered. And it does matter because that's a part of who we are. It matters that we do it well. It matters that we do it with intention. It matters that we do it with purpose. It matters that we have embraced that and believe in that and are always going to value that. Now, I have to tell you, we are not the only fellowship with an acapella tradition. If you go and look at the Orthodox churches, which are the world's oldest denomination, you will find that from the beginning of their existence to the present day, it's an acapella tradition. Now, the church in Scotland took it one step further. They believe that you should not worship with a hymnal, that there should be no man-made songs in that way that you look at. So songs like Amazing Grace, other songs that we have used throughout the ages would be out because they said the only authorized hymnal was the one you find in the Bible. Anybody know what that is? It's the Psalms. And so they literally sing the Psalms and always have. How did we miss that one? Because, you know, we've been so kind of into most of that all the way through. Here's what I would say to us. No one faults us for our acapella heritage. But here's what I think we did. I think we erred when we made the use of instruments a test of fellowship. And we allowed it to become a divisive issue when we moved it from being an option or a preference to being essential. When instrumental music became as important as being baptized in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, something went skewed. We took our small T traditions and we made it right in the center of our core values. In our own restoration heritage, we have this core value. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. In all things, love. We got off track when we betrayed our heritage and turned opinions and methods into essential. And then here's the big one. When we failed to practice love with those with whom we disagreed. That love was not at the center of those arguments, debates, discussion. See, I want to come back and say, I want us to come back to the heart of worship. Whether it's a cappella or instrumental or something of both, is that we love and accept each other as believers and equals in Christ. The, the focus on our singing and our assemblies, that shouldn't be our focus. Our focus needs to be on Christ. Christ exalted, Christ as the one who has died for our sins and who has paved the path for eternity for all of us. That has got to become the thing that we focus on. I would say, as the video said, we're already a both-and church. 
on Wednesday evenings, on Saturday nights, for other special worship events. We have been both instrumental and a cappella for some time. On Sunday a.m., we've decided that we're going to remain a cappella. Why? Because it's a part of who we are. It's a good part. It's a part that ought to be celebrated. It's a part that ought to be put up so that the world can see. And yet at the same time, we want to be sure that we dwell together in unity one with another. We have endured those dynamic tensions for several years. See, I think this goes deeper than just instrumental music. It goes to form versus substance, which is something the Greek philosophers dealt with for a long, long time. I want to talk about that for just a second. We were so consumed with establishing the correct form that we forgot the heart. And as the song says, we've got to go back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you. I would contend that errors of the heart are far more serious than flaws in the form. So as we look at this idea of of worship, I want to I want to talk about music. I want us to hold that for a second. And now I want to talk about the role of women in worship and how we have applied that at least over the past eight years. And I want to go back to what our elders eight years ago did when they talked about essentials of the faith. Hear these words and we'll have them on the screen for you as well. The Bible does not inherently forbid women using their God-given talents Standing up and speaking, administering church programs, singing congregationally in small groups or solo, reading scripture, sharing information about church projects, and making other announcements, testifying, praying, teaching groups of the congregation's membership, or otherwise participating fully in the life of the local church within and without the worship assembly. That was said eight years ago. By our elders. Now, here's my honest moment. In 2008, that was the majority opinion of the elders. But not all of the membership accepted that decision. And even eight years later, there are still those in our fellowship that struggle with that decision. That being said, the elders then and the elders today felt like and feel like it was the right thing to do and it embodied a consistent biblical position. And I want to look at that a little bit further for just a second. I believe that Scripture teaches that men and women were created by God and equally bear His image. God's intention was for the man and the woman to be one with one another in his image, therefore reflecting the intimacy that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every time I do a wedding, I talk about that mystery. That the most difficult thing in humankind is for two 
to become one. And yet, it is the example that Scripture uses to describe how the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwells together in unity. Man and women each have a different relationship, a distinct relationship with God, and share equally in having dominion over the created order. You look at Genesis 1, you look at what what it was before sin entered the world, but this perfect union disappeared when Adam and Eve sinned. And so this struggle for power, this desire to rule over one another is the result of human sin. However, through Christ, God has brought redemption to human beings, male and female alike, and has made a way for people to be together again, once again in a a community that demonstrates that kind of unity. That community is known as the church. The Apostle Paul exhorts husbands and wives to submit to one another, to love and respect each other, that they might be one with one another. In this same way, they model God's ideal intimate unity among members of the body of Christ, as well as unity between the church and Christ its head. Remember as Jesus prayed in John 17, the thing he said was, Father, I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. At the core of who we are, it is a unity movement. And yet I have to look at Jesus' life on earth. He accepted women as disciples and supporters of his ministry. He interacted with women in such a way it was drastically counter and different than anything that was going on in his culture. You can't look At John chapter 4. And look at that story of Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. A Samaritan woman at that. And it caused everybody to go. Look at what he's doing. Look at how he's responding to. He's having a conversation. Openly and in public with her. Counter to every cultural norm in place at the time. When the church was established at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit poured out on women and men alike, as had been predicted in Joel chapter 2, the coming of the, the Spirit, as, as men and women would pray and prophesy in the church. Furthermore, the Spirit bestowed gifts of those in the community of believers without giving preferential treatment based on gender. And the only admonition is that every believer is to use the gifts they have been given to the glory of God, the edification of the body, and the building of the church. I think the church of Jesus Christ should be first in line to champion the empowerment of women and girls throughout the world, encouraging them to be contributing members first in their church and also in their society. In fact, I believe the community of God's people should be the epicenter of human flourishing. 
where women and men are encouraged together and they are supported in their efforts to develop and use the gifts that God has given them, whether he stations them right here or sends them to other places throughout the world. The church of Christ ought to be such a dazzling showpiece of female and male flourishing that the world takes notice. God created his daughters and his sons to be kingdom builders, to pay attention to what is happening around them and to contribute. The Bible doesn't blink, even though some Christians may, when you see names like Deborah, Esther, Mary of Nazareth, Priscilla, Phoebe, Naomi, Ruth, Hannah, Tamar, Rahab, and Mary Magdalene, and they step forth out of the shadows And they become strong and courageous leaders used by God for his good purpose. See, I think the definition of leadership according to Jesus is radical. And I think it's potent. Often it means standing alone, feeling isolated and fearful, but doing what is right in God's sight anyway. Kingdom leadership is never about being first. It is always about being last. It's never about being the boss, but it's always about encouraging people to come as you are, that you matter to God, that children are vital to everything that we believe, and grace happens here. I find God's vision both exhilarating But I find God's vision also sobering. And at Skillman, we have embraced that vision and continue to embrace that vision as we look for opportunities in worship that are both traditional and non-traditional. Why? Because we are going to call all people, all people, not just the people who agree with how we choose to do worship. We're going to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. And as we call them, we're going to show them that we are all about loving God, loving others, and loving the world. I know there are some in this audience that are just sitting there like this. Because anytime you start to talk about change and navigating change, it creates its own set of tension. But here's my questions for all of us. How might we love each other, pray for each other, bear each other's burdens, even when we disagree with one another? How are we going to be Christ-like in our actions and attitudes and show patience when, when those who've looked at the same set of passages and ideas and yet they've come to a completely different conclusion? Are we okay with diversity of belief as long as the essentials of the gospel are held true? Are we okay with the diversity in this body of Christ? If you look around, this church does not look like it looked 15 years ago. 
And there are some people that go, I hate that. And yet I will tell you that when it comes back to the church, you'll have a hard time defending that position. Because it was a place where Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female could come together. It was a place where race wasn't important, where gender wasn't important, where socioeconomic status wasn't important. It's a place where God is important. And we can come. And give our hearts and our lives in worship to him. Jesus did not give us a small gospel. He gave us a full-orbed gospel with vast dimensions. And they defy all these measurements which make us comfortable. We want it in such black and white terms. So that we understand the boundaries and we are comfortable. Faith is not comfortable. It never has been. It calls you to go to a cross. To deny yourself your own desires, your own way of doing things. To consider others better than yourself. To pick up that cross daily and to follow after Christ. That's what we are called to do. And that's who we are called to be. I don't believe that people are lost because they don't understand or they don't agree with my understanding of various passages. I believe we are saved by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Not by our ability to exegete text about the forms of of worship. So let me make this personal. And Bubba, I'm sorry, I got to put you on front street this morning. My mother-in-law has been one of my favorite people for 30 years. 30 years. I have known her and loved her and she has known me and loved me and she cares about me and one of the greatest joys of my life is I'm her son-in-law. Because there's not a better person that I've ever met than my mother-in-law. And I think that's a wonderful thing to be able to say about somebody. Amen? And we had this conversation. And it went kind of like this. We were talking about church and all the things that go on with church. And I was kind of talking about the polarization that we sometimes deal with. You know, whether it's, whether it's in worship or in other things that people just are on these extremes. We were having this conversation around a family dinner. I, Taylor was there. Lindley was there. Chris and I were there. There may have been even some others there. I don't remember. She may not remember the specifics of that conversation, but I've never forgotten them. Because she said some things in that that were so incredibly wise. She made the statement. She said, Chuck, you know, basically I've grown up all my life at Skillman. Skillman taught me how to love God. Skillman taught me what's important. And she said, and I have these lifelong friendships with people who have encouraged me, walked with me, and have, you know, done life with me. Even when life was difficult and life wasn't easy, they were right there, never forsaking me, 
always beside me. She said, Skillman is always going to be my church. It's my church. Those are my people. They are the people I believe in. Don't worry so much about me. Build a church that will reach my grandchildren. I want you to hear that. And building a church that reaches our grandchildren is a church that's going to look probably vastly different than the way we did church. And yet, if we are calling all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ, if we are loving God, loving each other, loving the world, if we stay centered in the essentials of the gospel, that's the dream of the church that makes me jazzed. And juiced. See, I don't want a place that's all homogeneous and everybody looks the same, does the same. Everybody's pretty and happy and it's great and wonderful and all that kind of thing. I think that's incredibly boring. And I also think it's incredibly shallow. I want a church that challenges me. I want people that push me. I want discussion that enlivens me. I know we all won't agree all the time. That's good. It's good that we can have disagreement. Here's what's better. That we can disagree and remain in unity. That's the church we hope to reinvent. So, This morning, if you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, repented of your sins, and been baptized into Him, we encourage you to do that. But if you made that decision a long time ago, as elder couples gather around this room, spend some time in prayer. Pray for this church. Pray for what God is doing among us and how God is moving in us. Allow God's Spirit to breathe the Ruah into us so that life goes forward.